Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of ClearCast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today I have the former general counsel for ZTE turned whistleblower on the line, and we're going to hear about his story that is outlined in his book, Standing Up to China, where he uncovered some pretty shocking things about the company trying to get around U.S. export laws. Ashley Yablon is a trusted source in understanding the ins and outs of the elusive Chinese market and most importantly, the ins and outs of ZTE with his experience. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I know currently the Biden administration has prohibited authorizations of new telecommunications equipment from China's ZTE since they pose that unnecessary risk to U.S. national security. Before we kind of get into the current events and what your thoughts are, I I just thought that we should back it up to the beginning of your story and how you started with ZTE. And how that fallout started before you blew the whistle on them. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks, Katie, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I started at ZTE in in 2011, and real quickly, actually within the first month, I learned that ZTE was under house investigation, both ZTE and my former employer Huawei, as a threat to U.S. national security, and. What I uncovered was that ZTE had created an elaborate scheme, and it was a way to buy U.S. component parts, re-export those or put those into their technology, and then re-export it to the embargoed countries. And it was kind of an elaborate shell game with different uh, shell entities, but it made its way back to China and for ZTE to, to sell these goods. The problem with it was it got around U.S. export laws, and the laws are very clear. You cannot sell to the embargoed countries, and that's what ZTE had done to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. This elaborate scheme allowed them to buy U.S. component parts, put them into their products, and then re-export them to the embargoed countries. So that's that's what I kind of uncovered, and, and that's what eventually I went to the FBI with. Well, so when you started and you came to the conclusion that they were already under investigation, obviously, or maybe not obviously, you had some alarm bells going off. What I, I like to call red flags that I, I kind of didn't see at the time. Looking back now, I obviously see those red flags. But but again, that first one was that that what I like to call the uh, Thanksgiving Day meeting. And this is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in 2011. A meeting was called. And you have to remember, I'm the, the general counsel for ZTE USA. So they're based here. and But all the executives are, are Chinese nationals. They're here on visas. So 80% of our office, including all the executives, are Chinese nationals. The only U.S. born executive is myself as their general counsel. And the bottom line was they were saying to me, Ashley, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, well, we need to hire a a firm, a Washington, D.C. based law firm that can assist us through this investigation, U.S. House Intelligence investigation. And through a lot of different things, as you read about in the book, the takeaway of that meeting was, that's fine. We can hire a, a DC firm 
But at the end of the day, Ashley, it's going to be you that stands up in front of Congress and says, we, ZTE, are doing nothing wrong. So again, huge red flag. Didn't see it at the time, but obviously that was the the precursor for for many things to come down the road. We'll get into, you know, as a whistleblower, we have had conversations previously with whistleblowers and attorneys. And so we'll get into that in a little bit. But since you were the general counsel for ZTE USA, as a lawyer, was attorney client privilege an issue? Or were you scared of relaying this information? Or what was going through your head before you blew the whistle and went to the FBI? You know, that's a great question. That is, that's at the, that's at the the heart of this whole uh, what's in my book and the story. But but what happened was ZTE then, in addition to this House investigation, then got subpoenaed because Reuters came out with an article where they got their hands on a copy of an actual contract, the actual agreement between ZTE and the country of Iran. And it was for hundreds of millions of dollars of spying technology. In addition to the agreement they got, they got an over 900-page packing list. We all know what a packing list is, right? We go to Ikea, you know, it tells you everything that's in the box. But now imagine an over 900-page packing list that tells you not only one large spying cell tower, but tells you every U.S. component part that's in it. So think about, like I mentioned before, ZTE had created this elaborate scheme. Now it was finally uncovered. And ZTE came to me and said, what if we lie to the government and say we never we never shipped it to Iran? And I said, well, it's too late. You know, the cat's out of the proverbial bag. They already know that you've done it. And then they came up with one scheme after another, and each one was more ridiculous. It was, hey, what if we go and we go to that warehouse where all this is sitting in Iran, and we take out all the U.S. component parts and we put in you know, parts from other countries. And I said, again, same problem. They already know you've done it. And finally, they looked at me and they said, we're going to, uh, we agree, we're going to comply with the government and the Department of Commerce, which was now investigating them. And they said, we're going to comply. And I said, great. And then an attorney who worked for me, who was Chinese, heard them explain in Mandarin we're going to lie, we're not going to comply, and we're going to make Ashley the scapegoat. And so it was at that point that I realized I was in quite the predicament. And so to your original question, was there attorney-client privilege? Yes and no. So we all know what attorney-client privilege is. Attorney-client privilege is when your client comes to you and they tell you, hey, I committed a bad act in the past. You as an attorney have to keep that privileged. The exception to that is when your client comes to you and they say, I'm going to commit a crime in the future. And that's exactly what ZTE was doing. They were going to lie to our government. They were going to what we call spoliation of evidence. They were going to destroy all the evidence and they were going to make me the scapegoat. And you have to think about it. This isn't just a a, a small crime or a petty crime. This is a huge crime against our, our national security for you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And they're wanting me to lie to our government and be the fall guy. So at that point, to to your original question, that's when the exception to attorney-client privilege came into play, what we call the uh, crime fraud exception. 
And that's when, and again, I'm a lawyer at the time I was married. My, my wife was a lawyer. All my best friends are lawyers, but I ended up having to hire on my own dime, five different lawyers to represent me, including a criminal lawyer who told me, Ashley, you have criminal implications here. We need to go to the FBI. And, and that's what triggered it and, and made me the, the whistleblower that, that, that I talk about in my book. Well, sounds like a scary situation to say the least. I mean, you're you're receiving pressure from this large corporation that clearly has little to no conscience. You are maybe afraid for, you know, the, the US's well-being and our national security. You're also probably very scared for your own well-being and for your family's well-being. And so I just I I can't imagine you know, being in a situation like that. And so choosing to become a whistleblower is is a very daunting thought. And at the time when you were talking with your 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 team that you hired, your legal team, were you aware of any whistleblower protections or were there any to help you as you navigated that process? You know, great question. I I ended up as part of that team hiring an actual whistleblower attorney. And the bottom line at the time, at the time, you got to remember this is back in 2011, at the time, and he was a a real subject matter expert on whistleblowing and China as well. And and his, his answer to me was, Ashley, there isn't real good protections or, or outs for someone like you in your predicament. And as he described it, and I thought it was really well said, was there isn't a, a clear whistleblower protection. What, what we've done is kind of created like a quilt or, or a blanket, a little patchwork of here and there and, and, and piece together whistleblower protections. But you, unfortunately, fall through the cracks. And, and what I understood from him was a true whistleblower that we think of has protections if you come forward and it's a it's a contract between whatever company and the US government. What we had here was obviously it had national implications, but it wasn't a contract with the US government. So I kind of fell a little bit through the cracks. Ironically, and to your point, at the I I my timing was off by just a few months because at at that time they were redoing the whistleblower protection laws to where now, and, and they were put in place right around the time that I, my issues happened, but the laws quickly changed to allow different protections to allow for not only protections, but also recovery. So just to be clear, if this was a normal, like I described, whistleblower situation with the U.S. government uh, contract, I would have been entitled to... I think maybe 20, up to 20, 25% at a minimum of the overall recovery. And you have to remember, just to fast forward, the overall recovery that our government clawed back from CTE was in excess of two and a half billion dollars. So obviously several hundred million dollars my way. I didn't, in fact, I didn't get any, any money and let alone any protection. So yes, the laws have changed. But I, uh, unfortunately, at the, at the time for me, they, there wasn't the type of protections or, uh, for me, uh, let alone any type of recovery. After you left ZTE, after you blew the whistle, after you went to the FBI, 
I know that you had to go into hiding among many other things. So I'd love to hear more about that. And I mean, I guess just kind of what was going through your head after you finally made the decision on what was next. Yeah. So like I said, imagine when, when I heard that ZTE was going to lie, uh, not cooperate with the government, and then more importantly, make me the scapegoat. I, I came home, I spoke to my wife, hired all the lawyers that I just mentioned. And you got to remember, this is coming out of my pocket. I, I, uh, I ended up uh, using every bit of savings, sold everything that I owned in order to pay these five different lawyers to represent me and went to the FBI and explained what was going on. And what happened was they created a, what ended up being a 32 page affidavit. So I, I sat down with the FBI, I gave them for two days, gave them all the information, explained the shell companies, explained all the players who were involved. And they created what I said was a 32 page affidavit. And my understanding was that affidavit was to be presented to a judge for the judge to eventually grant an order. And that order was to be what we would consider a raid, an FBI raid on the, the ZTE offices there where I worked. And so I gave all that information, but my part of my employment law team said, but hey, Ashley, you need to go back to, to work. And so I did. And then what happened was that affidavit got leaked. And again, it was supposed to be filed under seal, meaning, and I'm sure your audience is quite familiar with that, but but under seal, meaning no one was to ever know it existed. No one, it was never to see the light of day. Mine got leaked and a reporter called me and said, I'm running the story. I have your affidavit. I went into full panic, called my lawyers. What are we going to do? We could never figure out how it got leaked. But the bottom line was the moment it got leaked and it became this huge story, on the internet and all around, my wife and I went into hiding. I received death threats on my phone from ZTE saying, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. We're going to kill your children, your children's children. And it went on and on. We were concerned our house was bugged. So we didn't live at our house, but we had the FBI come and, and do a sweep. We um, uh, were given what I like to refer to, and you read about it in the book, what I call the bat phone, which was a number that I could call at any time. And the FBI would be there in three to four minutes. I had to use that, that number and that call in a really scary situation. Uh, my wife was followed just walking the dog by uh, a Chinese gentleman in a car. And as she rounded the corner, the car rounded the corner. And as she picked up the pace, the car picked up the pace until she was in a full sprint all the way back to the house. So tons of really scary stuff. And, uh, but, but, but yeah, then had to go back to the office after all that, after that story came out and that was really scary. We had the FBI surrounding the building as I went back to, to work because my employment lawyer said, Hey, we got to preserve your employment claims, go back to work. So really scary stuff. And, uh, yeah, uh, quite an episode, but, but nearly bankrupted myself, just trying to defend myself in this horrible situation. Horrible to say the least. And I, I was going to ask, as you were speaking to the FBI raid and having to go there and, and be present for that, is it anything like in the movies? And I, it certainly sounds like they should make a movie about your story with, 
with all of those other things that unfolded. So let's talk about your book. And I know that you've already highlighted some of the sort of more shocking parts to your story, but readers, they can really expect in Standing Up to China to kind of go into some of those dark spaces in corporate greed. And as you are telling those things, it it really does sound like Hollywood a little bit. But as a whistleblower, it follows your story and some of the world's most powerful Chinese telecom giants that you, you were working with. And after you uncovered that illegal scheme and everything that sort of led up to, you know, this point in the podcast... Any other crazy stories to tease to or highlight from your your journey in the book, or I guess just as we are at just over a decade since since it happened? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I give a lot of speeches and, and talks, obviously, and people always ask certain things, and and uh, it's always one of the main questions I get during the Q and A is, "Hey, Ashley, do you feel safe? Do you feel safe now?" And my answer is. You know, no, I'm, you know, and one of the things was the FBI offered my my wife and I the witness protection program. And, you know, hearing those words come out of the FBI agent's mouth as we're sitting at the FBI office. And as I detail in the book, my criminal lawyer looked at me and said, hey, Ashley, I've been coming here representing clients in a criminal capacity at the FBI for 30 plus years. And his words were, I've never seen the level of quote, heavy hitters that the FBI has flown in from DC to meet with you. And I thought, well, great. (laughs) How lucky me. But, but they, but they explained that if this was the Mexican Zeta mafia, you'd already be dead. If this was the Russian mafia, you would already be dead. Chinese are probably about third on the list. And I remember jumping up from this table and screaming, is that supposed to make me feel better? And they, they kind of sheepishly laughed and, and apologized and said no. But when, when they offer you the witness protection program, that's awfully scary. And at the time, here I am a lawyer. My, my wife had just left a firm and had started her own practice. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to give up my whole life and moved to somewhere and everything I've worked for, everything my my wife had worked for is now gone. And I'm living someone else's life uh, in the middle. And we've all seen Better Call Saul. I'm, I'm living I'm living in uh, Nebraska working at, at a Cinnabon at the mall. And I, I just thought, as my wife and I finally decided, we'll just take our chances. And to your point, I, I you know, I'm asked all the time, do I feel safe? Well, no. Things I'll be somewhere and things don't add up. Things don't make sense. Things look like a bad situation and I'll leave. But I've I've been told by our government I can never ever go back to uh to to China or or any real parts of Asia because they said you'll never come back. And that's pretty scary. So, yeah, the you know, lessons learned after a decade was my life has changed. My life is different not what I had anticipated. And um, it's, a, it's a scary thing, but we, we made the conscious decision. We just have to live our life and we'll just take our chances. Sheesh. Yeah, I, I just, I can't even imagine. And what, what a tough decision to make 
Like I teased to earlier in the conversation, the current state of affairs is the U.S. has had to shell out $1.9 billion to help rural carriers rip out the ZTE equipment from their older networks. And they were obviously attracted to those companies because of their lower prices and the financing packages that they were able to provide, despite maybe ulterior motives. And I believe another $3 billion needs to be approved by Congress in order to finish that job. So thoughts on that as we're in sort of the current state of affairs and everything that you experienced in this incredible story? Yeah, you know, I look back and obviously the, the whole scandal with me was ZTE, but I feel like I'm also kind of the unicorn because not only did I work at ZTE, but I also worked at their competitor, Huawei, the other wrongdoer, the other Chinese telecom company. And I, you know, I, I, I think back and I realize that these two companies, these two Chinese companies have worked so hard to get a footprint here in the U.S. And, and they've been driven out before and tried to come back and driven out and, and come back. But I really think and I'm hopeful. I try to be optimistic. But to your point, I think our government is finally realizing they're just bad players. And, you know, shame on us the first few times for allowing them back in. But it sounds like we're making a real concerted effort to keep them out this time uh, and putting a lot of money behind that. And I'm optimistic and uh, I know it's a lot of money and I know it's going to be quite a bit of work. And but I think that at the end of the day, it's important and I think it's for our security and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic and uh, really kind of excited that these uh, two international bat players will no longer have uh, the type of footprint here in the U.S. and, and uh, pose a threat to our security any longer. Well said. And that is why Department of Commerce careers are, are a very important cog in the national security wheel and along with all of the other careers that, you know, we can find on clearancejobs.com. But everyone, this is Ashley Yablon. You can find his book, Standing Up to China, on Amazon. And for more information on foreign affairs, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, the nation's number one cyber defense agency. Today, the agency has grown and evolved, assuring the nation's critical and physical infrastructure is secure, resilient, and reliable. Learn more about CISA career opportunities at www.cisa.gov careers.